We will do whatever it takes to protect households and businesses to get through this and to make sure that the effects do not become permanent. I am announcing today, in total, a £30 billion fiscal stimulus to support British people, British jobs and British businesses through this moment. At the height of the pandemic, politicians promised to do whatever it took to keep the economy going and introduced emergency support like the furlough scheme. But now, those measures have been cut and the conversation has turned to fixing the public finances, ending reckless borrowing and preventing soaring debt. The word austerity hasn't featured yet, but it's all feeling a bit familiar, isn't it? Anyone who tells you that you can borrow more today and tomorrow will simply sort itself out just doesn't care about the future. So yes, I want tax cuts, but in order to do that, our public finances must be put back on a sustainable footing. So, what do these phrases actually mean? Should we really be worried about things like government borrowing and public debt? And what are some of the alternative ways of thinking about our economy? Well, I think there's a whole problem around what the economic orthodoxy is. If we look at the past 10 to 12 years and austerity actually being a political choice, not a necessity. And if you look at that history, what you see is the balancing of the books often comes at the expense of people who are poorest in society or in our public services. And I think one of the most important things here is looking at who this is going to impact. We've been talking like it is like household debt for a very long time. But when you're a homeowner, what you worry about with debt is what's going to happen if you can't pay it. The bailiffs might come round. You might have a repossession. But it's not like that for the government, not least because of who they're borrowing it from. Of the money borrowed since the pandemic, actually 92% of it is owed to the Bank of England. For me, if I was standing there, I would be saying we are faced with a succession of profound, deep crises to the way we organise society. And the British state, as we emerge from this crisis, is going to use its power to solve all of these issues together through a big programme of investment that creates jobs, that boosts employment that decarbonizes our economy and reduces inequality. On this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're asking, is austerity back? And if so, what do we do about it? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Dora Mead, Head of Messaging at the New Economy Organizers Network and dear, dear colleague. Hi, Dora. Hi, Aisha. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being with us. And I'm also really happy to be joined by returning friend of the pod, Frank Van Leuven, Senior Economist at the New Economics Foundation. Hi, Frank. Hi, Aisha. Really nice to be here. Brilliant, brilliant. So let's jump in because this is a a very juicy topic and one that I'm sure we're all going to have lots to say about. So we heard in the intro some phrases that had been used by Rishi Sunak uh, at the Conservative Party conference last month. So Frank, let's start with you. Can you tell us what we mean by public finances and why is the Chancellor worried about them? Sure. So effectively, we can think about public finances in terms of how we mobilise resources in the economy and and how we allocate resources in the economy. And and, and we should think about that in terms of both spending and investment um, in things like climate infrastructure but also in terms of the welfare system and, and how we support people on lower incomes and the more disadvantaged people in society. But then also it, it has to do with taxes and the types of revenues that the government generates to some, in, in part finance some of its spending. But we can think about public finances as very much as kind of 
there's three different parts to it. There's the taxes that the government raises, so that's its revenue, then it's its spending and its investments. And then there's also its borrowing. That's how it tends to finance the difference between the spending and the revenue it collects. And more recently, what we've seen is also the money printing by the Bank of England, which can also help finance the government's public finances. Now, the government and the chancellor right now is quite worried about the state of public finances. And we've heard a lot about this because we've heard um, about record levels of borrowing during the pandemic to support the economy, to support households falling you know, through the cracks and to support businesses from falling throughout the pandemic. And we hadn't seen levels of borrowing this high since World War II. So that there's a reason to be concerned on that front. As you borrow more each year, then that kind of adds to the stock, the overall amount of debt outstanding that the government holds and that level of outstanding debt that the government has is at levels that we haven't seen since the 1960s and the 1970s. And that, in a nutshell, is very much why Chancellor Sunak is worried at the moment. There's reasons we can get onto why there's possibly way too much concern about that and there are better ways to deal with it than, than the Chancellor has, has set out, but we can get onto that and hopefully a bit later. Yeah, I guess that was going to be my first question is kind of how much of a problem is that, I guess. I think we've talked before on the pod when we've had you on before, Frank, about how sometimes this kind of debt hysteria is actually a bit of a kind of misdirect. And there are other countries, for example, like Japan, which have much higher rates of debt and are much less concerned. And also we can borrow money in our own currency from our own central bank. So I guess just is that a big problem? Should we also be really concerned about that? But then also... At the moment, it seems to be the case that the UK government is borrowing at really low interest rates. Are they going to go up in the future? And is that kind of part of the cause for concern? What should we be bothered about and not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, I mean, I guess what I gave was very much the superficial concern. And then the, the more nuanced concern is, as you mentioned, are interest rates going to go up? And, and because we have this higher, by historical standards, this, the level of debt is 100% of GDP right now. That's the size of the economy, effectively. If interest rates start to go up, then the government has to pay more interest on that debt and the debt servicing costs start to go up. But there has been a huge neglect throughout the entire pandemic that the fact is government borrowing costs are actually lower than they were before the pandemic. And the traditional way of thinking about this and the conventional policymaking approach that Sunak kind of abides by is that as you borrow more, your borrowing costs should increase. Now, the kind of counter side of that has actually happened. We've borrowed more and our debt servicing costs are less. And that has huge implications for how much we can borrow. And what we should be thinking about actually is that level of interest that we have to pay rather than how what the debt levels are at. That's a much better indicator of how the borrowing capacity of the government. And, and because those levels are at historical lows, there's actually a lot more space to effectively borrow. That's definitely true. And the second thing, then you could worry, oh, well, there's a lot of talk about inflation and, you know, maybe the interest rates are going to start going up. Okay, possibly true. But it's really important to mention that it's the Bank of England that controls that interest rate. We don't necessarily need to raise interest rates. There's other things that we can do to influence inflation, and maybe we shouldn't be as worried about inflation as we are right now. 
So the Bank of England actually controls the government's borrowing costs, and they can work together to make sure effectively they cooperate rather than kind of pushing in opposite directions, which we've seen over the last decade. Then we can have a better chance at tackling some of the environmental and social challenges that have been effectively plaguing the UK economy for the last decade. Mm, interesting. There's much more I want to hear um, and say about this, but we are going to circle back to this in a bit. For now, I want to come to you, Dora. It it feels like this conversation about borrowing and spending and interest rates and inflation is a significant move away from what we were hearing from the government in the height of the pandemic. Would you agree with that? And And I guess, do you think that the rhetoric that we're seeing at the moment mirrors what we saw from George Osborne when austerity was kind of introduced? Yeah, so I actually think it's kind of, there isn't really a simple answer to this question as to whether kind of austerity is back in its previous form. I think like austerity is a policy agenda that kind of seeks to shrink public spending year on year is not clearly this government's express or sort of central political project in the way it was under the Cameron Osborne era. So we know Boris like loves to splash the cash. And although, you know, we're seeing these sort of clashes with other departments, um, namely the Treasury, I'm not sure we're going to see Boris being the spokesperson for a government that centres austerity specifically as its primary political project, as we've seen before. But I think it's for the kind of average person austerity really hasn't ever ended you know i think for most of us it's not really that sort of austerity is something that we look back on um, and actually although we've had this big moment of spending in the pandemic that's not really kind of shifted the day-to-day reality which is you know youth centers being closed down a kind of train network which is you know, we've got used to the fact that it's late and kind of limping on, that libraries kind of having to justify their existence or I guess just empty spaces where public provision used to be and the kind of moment in time when it's a kind of distant memory, the way we would have thought that public provision and services would be being opened or being expanded rather than being closed or kind of limited. So I think that that austerity everydayness is very much something that for many people is just kind of the norm. But then I also think my work is very much looking at things on a narrative level and the kind of austerity mindset is very much embedded in how people think about the economy. I think that this was the real success of that project, really, is both a kind of cultural project of austerity as well as the kind of economic project. I sometimes think of this as a bit more as like a kind of austerity realism, that there's kind of almost like a widespread sense that basic tenant or underpinning justifications for austerity are just good economics. So it's kind of this scarcity mindset that there's only so much to go around, that any large-scale public spending will have to be paid back, and that essentially that idea of sacrifice or kind of placating the economy through cuts when necessary, and the social provision of what we need as a kind of society is put on the back foot for that, is something that I think is quite deeply embedded in how people think and reason about the economy. And I think we are, we see that um, in the work we've been doing, you know, throughout the pandemic in kind of focus groups, in audience insight work. And I think, you know, a lot of what's going to happen in the coming weeks, the Conservative Party are probably very aware that this kind of austerity realism is something that they can bank on for people, you know, accepting this kind of rhetoric, making a comeback. 
Mm, that makes a lot of sense. So in terms of the narrative work and the media in particular, Dora, obviously during the financial crash in 2008, there was a really strong narrative around government spending and public debt, kind of similarly to what we're seeing now, arguably to that end of, I guess, kind of fear mongering or, or reinforcing that austerity narrative that you're talking about to pave the way for certain policies. Would you agree that that's kind of what we're seeing again? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that there's I think it's twofold. It's kind of a fear mongering around this idea that we often have this kind of model with the economy that we're always sort of on the edge of disaster, that at any moment, you know, I guess like the financial crash, you know, this language around crashing that kind of gives this sense that around the corner is going to be something which is going to destroy everything and kind of burn, essentially. And I think that that fear-mongering, which then sort of justifies this policy agenda, is really based on sort of particular ways of thinking about the economy, which are fairly widespread. Like, firstly, something we really found in Frame the Economy is the project which really kind of dug into how people think about this is a real kind of acknowledged ignorance from a lot of the people that we um, interviewed about how they think about the economy. And that's just to sort of caveat that that is often not the case when you're looking at how people think about something, right? So if you ask people about the social security system, or if you ask people about the immigration system, they'll very happily kind of wax lyrical about what they know about it, what they think they know about it, when actually they often have very little understanding or they're very wrong about about the subject. Whereas with the economy, what we found is people are very quick to say, I don't really understand it. I don't really know. I don't I defer to this person. I've never really got it. It's very complicated. And I think that what that really opens space for, uh, which you can see play out in these moments, is a sense that the economy is something that's best left to experts, that what we should assume is that a kind of top-down control of the economy, but also that we just accept this language that sort of fear mongers, but also plays on this sense of it's just really kind of quite complicated and you should probably leave it to us. And you see that actually people are fairly kind of amenable to that. Yeah, I mean, we talk, obviously we've talked to a little bit about this on the pod before, in particular, that sense of, as you say, this is something that isn't for me. And that being, I guess, quite a, a deliberate move there in terms of disarming people. I want to go on to talk about the budget before we go a bit further into the framing stuff. So as we know, the autumn budget and 2021 spending review are coming up in a couple of days time. The Institute for Fiscal Studies has said that the Chancellor is on track to bring in about £2 billion worth of cuts to government departments, like, as you were saying, Dora, local government, further education, prison, courts, at the same time as increasing taxes. So let's start with you, Frank. High level, what are some of the key things that we should be looking out for when the budget is announced? Yes, yeah, so, so there's some interesting things that are definitely happening and, and a lot of rumours, so we can only speculate for now. But one thing that, that actually was quite interesting that I think we should think about is They've decided to lower taxes on the banking sector, the bank levy, from 8% to 3%. And they've done that at exactly the same time as raising the national insurance contributions. And it just feels like that there's an asymmetry there, right? That it should really be at this time what we've been through over the past, you know, year and a half to two years, that it should be the the ones with the broader shoulders, financially, so to speak, that should shoulder the burden of having to, you know, pay their fair share in taxes. This whole idea of lowering the taxes for the banking sector was quite a shock, especially given what's been going on. And then there's a second question about how, you know, when we think about things like that, the leveling up agenda that the government has set out will fail on its toes 
if that's the way that it's going to go on about it, you know, the trickle down, so to speak, approach of lower taxes for the wealthy and hoping that that feeds into people on the lower end of the scale, that that will bring about a level playing field, it will fail. And so that was at least like one small thing that I thought was interesting to bring out. But on the broader side, I would expect, yes, a pretty conservative budget in the sense that there's not going to be huge amounts of spending announcements. What we're hearing, especially on the green side, is possibly a bit worrying. The Treasury is starting to kind of plant seeds and saying we're not really going to have enough money to spend on the climate side. So that's, you know, one of the major things to look out for. And then the second thing is possibly we should be very clear, we're still kind of in a recessionary recovery period. And now is not the time to be worried or cutting back on spending and investment. There's a huge opportunity right now to be kicking off and, and, and really upscaling those types of investments. So what you laid out there was definitely cuts to the current what we call the current budget, which is things like social spending and everyday type of expenditure. But we won't see very much on the capital expenditure side, which is things like infrastructure type of spending. I don't expect to see too much on that side. And and so those things are quite worrying. And that's what we should expect to see, I think, coming out of the spending review. And and what we would want to see is definitely probably the inverse of that specifically. Yeah, we'll talk more about what we would want to see. But Dora, is this, same question, is this an austerity budget? And what do you think we should be looking out for? I think, I mean, it sounds like it's almost certainly going to have those tones as to whether it's kind of named in that way. Um, And I think from our perspective, as kind of progressives, there's a lot to look out for in terms of, you know, the holes or the sort of, I mean, it's a gamble, I think, to an extent that they're going to go in this direction at this moment. You know, I think we've had this big high watermark of kind of a sense of community and being in it together through the pandemic. And then obviously followed by the leveling up agenda, which has been incredibly ill-defined. And I think if what we would have expected or what the kind of assumptions are around what leveling up might have meant would have been, you know, some large scale infrastructure, more spending than it looks like we're going to get. So I think that we're going to see kind of quite significant holes or diversions in what we've been hearing from the Conservative Party so far. And I think that, you know, it's about how we're going to respond to that strategically, really, because it's going to lay them bare, um, kind of open in quite a few different kind of ways. Yeah, I mean, thinking about both how we respond, I guess, and what they should be doing differently. Frank, in the US, obviously, that Biden's implemented a massive fiscal financial stimulus that he's just about managed to get through, I think. Um, is that what we should be doing instead? Yeah, I, I'd say absolutely. Mm. I think what you were mentioning before is definitely there's a question about austerity by stealth that that's happening. And I think if you actually replace the word austerity with balance of the books, you'll see it's just maybe a change in language. Yeah. But coming back to the US, I think, you know, the Biden administration is really thinking about, you know, wow, we were left exposed by this pandemic hugely. We had a welfare system that was not fit for purpose. So when the pandemic hit, the lower income households were definitely left on the back burner. You know, there's a clear kind of thinking about, okay, so what are the lessons from that? Oh, you know, how do we make ourselves more resilient to 
future crises. And we do that by investing and spending into the economy. And so it's interesting because what Dora was saying before, right, that there's this kind of fear mongering about constant being on the edge of catastrophe. And instead of spending and investing to make ourselves more resilient to those types of catastrophes, we have this narrow focus on the risks to the public sector finances that we were talking about before. And that inevitably ends up to leading to bigger risks elsewhere, like the health system, like the welfare system. And then there's obviously the elephant in the room, which is climate change and environmental breakdown. And the irony of this all that's actually quite interesting is if you start investing and start spending on these things, then we will boost the supply side of our economy. We'll start building things. We'll build energy infrastructure. And then we might not be so left exposed to energy crises in the future. We'll start producing more goods and services. And so the supply of goods and services will increase alongside demand. And so then we might not have, you know, price increases because that's what's happening right now is there's inflation. And that has to do with the fact that we have supply shortages. We don't have the things that we're effectively demanding. And and so prices are going up because of that. So if we can produce more things and build up that supply, then that will help alleviate some of the inflationary pressures. And I would suggest that that's kind of what Biden has really put some thought into. And obviously, okay, in the short term, you can't build a wind farm in a day. It will take some time. But over time, you're putting people to work, you're getting well-paid jobs out there, and you're making yourself more resilient to future crises. And I think there's definitely a lesson in there for the UK economy and the Chancellor. I mean, they're, they're obviously radically different strategies. I suppose time will tell which one um, ends up being more effective. I think I've got an inkling. Let's zoom out a little bit. If austerity is all about spending or lack thereof, and what the government decides to spend or borrow or cut is guided by these things called fiscal rules, I think it would probably be good to explain them a little bit more. So Frank, I know you've been doing some work on this. What are the fiscal rules and who gets to decide them? Um, so, so fiscal rules are basically like the constraints that the government sets out for itself on how much it should borrow and how much debt there should be over a certain amount of time. And they're effectively numerical types of targets. And it's effectively the Treasury and the Chancellor that put those together. Okay. So how would, for example, like how might we notice a change to a fiscal rule show up in our day-to-day life? If you could give like a concrete example of that. Yeah. So so then what we had, it's possibly better to try to explain this in the context of what we were talking before. You know, after 2010, the fiscal rules effectively were saying, let's cut down on spending, let's cut down on borrowing, let's cut the debt. So they set out these targets to reduce borrowing to reduce the debt level. And so in in our day-to-day lives, you saw libraries being closed down, shortage of staff at the NHS, not enough hospital beds, not enough teachers per student, declining infrastructure. We saw environmental targets and spending on environment fall completely to the back burner. I don't know if you remember, but in 2008, the Cameron Osborne government, so the promise or the platform was to be the greenest government ever. They promised about 75 projects and they only completed one. 
by 2015. So those were the types of things that, that you see in your day-to-day lives as a consequence of these fiscal rules that are really binding in terms of trying to reduce borrowing and debt levels. There's a whole bunch of problems with them. One of the, the more interesting ones is they completely fail on their own terms. And by that, we've had to change fiscal rules on average over the last decade, every two years, because they're so poorly designed. Rather than reducing the government's debt level, they've actually increased. Rather than reducing borrowing levels, we've actually, borrowing levels have actually doubled over the projected time scale. So the way they've been designed has been really, really quite poor. And what we're effectively saying is that they need a dramatic rethink. And the irony is if you wanted to basically have something that caters better towards reducing debt levels and borrowing, and maybe you don't, but maybe you do, then there's better ways to do that. And if you look historically since World War II, the best way that we've managed to reduce debt levels is actually to spend and invest. And that creates more income for the private sector. Um, It creates more tax revenue for the government. And so over time, it makes it more manageable for the debt levels. And then the debt levels have actually naturally decreased. So our proposal effectively is, is to take that broader consideration into place. The second part to it, and I'm not, not going to try to bang on too much here, but it's also, like I was talking about before, to consider the role of the Bank of England. And what we saw throughout the pandemic is actually that while there was this, all this discussion about government borrowing and government borrowing being at record levels, all of that borrowing was fundamentally pretty much financed indirectly through the Bank of England's money printing program. So to give you an example, in the financial year of 2021, there was borrowing to the tune of $320 billion. Over that time period, the Bank of England's money printing program was $330 billion. So it actually printed more money than the government borrowed. And so the role of the Bank of England is not included both more in the wider media context, but also in terms of the design of these fiscal rules. And what we're saying is you need to kind of include the Bank of England because it has such a huge implication for the borrowing, uh, managing the borrowing and debt levels. Mm, Yeah, that's what I was going to say, really, because I think without everyone being so fortunate as to have a Frank Van Leuven on hand to explain these things, it certainly seems quite opaque, right? These terms like fiscal rules and monetary policy and things like that. And I know you were talking earlier, Dora, about that. I guess, correlating with how folks do or don't feel empowered to talk about the economy. Do you think there are ways that we could be talking about the economy that would make it easier for people to engage? I know that the Framing the Economy work that you mentioned earlier did some work on this. Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, and like I was saying, you know, it works to the advantage, I think, very much of the kind of conservative or like right wing agenda, really. If we think about the economy either as something that, well, if we, you know, we feel we reinforce this idea that we don't understand it, but also we have this kind of like absolute peppering of naturalistic language that either, you know, talks about the economy as a kind of medical condition that can be hurt or needs to recover or suffer from shocks or a kind of weather condition, you know, that we need to ride out the storm. And all of that, again, you know, going back to what I was saying before, 
preoccupies with like this idea of the economy as this sort of separate entity and that the abstract fate of the economy, if you like, is what really matters uh, rather than, you know, societies, communities, families. So I think it's really important that the story that we're telling about the economy and the kind of component parts of that story are very and are important to kind of then dig down into. I mean, we have messaging principles or frameworks that are very particular to how we can talk about the economy that I think in in the more abstract sense are really important and useful to kind of embed in any time we talk about the economy. You know, Frank's just done a fantastic, you know, your initial question around public finances and hearing what Frank unpacked that to mean, you know, for lots of people, they wouldn't hear those things. They wouldn't know that when we were talking about public finances, necessarily, what we were talking about was our social security system, was, you know, what's paying for our schools, what's keeping our our relatives well. And I think that what we have to do really is wherever possible from a progressive standpoint is to be making it really clear that the economy is nothing over and above us, you know, and it should be about moving society and kind of moving us as a society to where we want to go. So I think that like that aspect of always locating it in both the day to day, but also really kind of forefronting this idea that the economy and again, this kind of big thing that came out of the Frame the Economy project, but that it's something that is of human design and therefore, you know, can be redesigned, that we have power, that we have agency, that these are political decisions that lead to the idea that we have to cut rather than raise taxes, for example. And I think that injection of agency and decision making is really critical. I think we have had as well um, kind of work we've been doing on this a bit more recently. And I think particularly situating ourselves at this moment, you know, like I was again, sort of referred to previously that we have just transitioned out of maybe, I mean, maybe we're going to transition back into, but the kind of pandemic experience, both on a global scale, but also on a national scale, being something that really forefronted kind of our interdependence, you know, this kind of sense in which we are all connected. And so we've just been doing some message testing about how to talk about the economy in a way that really draws on that sense of interconnectedness. And we found that, you know, leading with that value and rooting it in the experience of the pandemic and you know, making that sort of bridge really between our interconnectedness as people and the connection of our economic well-being was really powerful and actually was really powerful across a range of different audiences. So I think, you know, we need to, it's really hard, especially in these moments um, when we're on the, you know, brink of a spending review, which is going to fill so many of us with fear. And, you know, we feel so clear on what is we want to stand up and talk about what's so wrong with this policy agenda. But I think we do need to remind ourselves that all too often our messages lead off with what's wrong. And really, we also need to be building this belief that things could be different. So we know that when we lead with values, so like the idea, for example, of this kind of interdependence, like conservative struggle, like seizing on the values of like love and family, for example, have been really critical to sort of the success of campaigns like the marriage equality campaign. And that's when you're really drawing on this kind of deeper sense of what is it to sort of, you know, live a good life and to live in ways that we sort of, when we're having a wider focus to the conversation of what sort of economy we want, what sort of society we want, we can talk about. So I think um, it is very important to try and in terms of how we sort of respond to this moment, that rather than sort of refuting the claims of the opponent saying that, you know, things like, I mean, the re-emergence of the uh, balancing of the books and the kind of 
in essence, the sort of underpinning of that is really this idea of equating the national finances to really like the household budget. And we've just got to be very careful that we don't spend a lot of time refuting those models and those metaphors that are being used to like purposefully mislead people and distract people from a bigger conversation about climate change, about inequality, about a whole range of different kind of justice issues. And actually, we need to try and kind of recenter that in the kind of messaging that we're using. Yeah, I mean, that all makes so much sense, Dora. And I think that's particularly the thing that you were saying around the kind of household budget equivocation. It feels like often, at least in my work as well, when encountering these kind of narratives, what you find is it seems to make sense, right? The idea that like the government budget is just like a household budget. And surely if you've splashed out over Christmas, you need to then tighten your belt afterwards. You know, as you said, it feels like pushing back against that not on its own terms but on on new ones is the only way that we can really challenge it yeah a hundred percent I mean one thing that we've just been looking at testing out is because I think metaphorical language with something like the economy is so important it's like the absolute scaffolding like I was saying before you know people feel this sense of ignorance they feel this sense that they don't understand it so we have these prominent metaphors that really become the sort of, yeah, I think of it as a kind of the scaffolding for our thinking. So growth is obviously a really dominant one, the idea that kind of growth is just good. But also I think um, the household budget is, you know, a very useful, very visual, very kind of easy to grasp um, metaphor. And I think that, you know, the reality is right now on the left, we don't have an equivalent. And that's something that we're like working, you know, developing different ideas around. I mean, something we've just been testing, which was very effective in terms of its kind of stickiness was this idea of sort of using a metaphor of the economy as being a vehicle. And the reason that we kind of were interested in this metaphor is that it means that the economy suddenly becomes something which is about taking us where we want to go. You're introducing the notion of a journey, but also there's within a vehicle, it kind of, there's a requirement of a human operator or a a driver. And also this kind of implications of motion, moving us forward, taking us somewhere that we can think about what will make a journey smoother, less bumpy, quicker and slower. And I guess, you know, that it also allows for a space for talking about, to some extent, kind of inequality. So is there a seat for everyone or who's kind of been left behind, I guess. But these things, it's, you know, it's really, they were just incredibly effective at repetition, seizing on a metaphor that worked very well, and really being absolutely brazen in knowing that it's misleading, but (laughs) continuing on. And we just see, I think, that kind of message discipline that we've seen ever since the financial crisis around, you know, this idea of what it is to be economically responsible. You know, we're just still absolutely living in that shadow. And that's what we're really going to see over the next couple of weeks coming back to bear. Mm, let's yeah let, I want to end by talking about I guess how effective this project has been if, you know for progressives historically like to this point rooting us back to where we are now coming to you Frank first do you think we're in a different place than we were in 2008 when it comes to kind of challenging austerity I, I guess from your perspective from a policy point of view but also from a framing point of view as Dora has discussed, you know, we have spent a long time having these types of conversations and how well have we done? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think we should look at it as a spectrum and a a constant kind of process, so to speak. The interesting thing is maybe in 2018, 2019, there was really this kind of sense of austerity fatigue, right? But then the pandemic has, has struck. There's two kind of 
battles going on. I think one is like on a basic level, people do know like the government has borrowed a lot and that's worrying and they can relate to that because, you know, at an individual level, maybe we've had to borrow to kind of make ends meet and so forth. On the other hand, I do think that there's more of an acknowledgement that while we have borrowed a lot and wait a minute, you know, after 2010, they said we couldn't borrow more, but now we've just borrowed a whole bunch. So it's that strange. And, and wait a minute, I'm also hearing more about this Bank of England thing, what's going on there. And, and the fact that the Bank of England has, has now printed almost one trillion's worth of money that's in circulation. And we haven't seen this like huge episode of what's called hyperinflation of like skyrocketing prices. Actually, we've had the opposite. Only now a bit in the last three months or four months has inflation been taking off. And by that, it's, it's maybe 1%. We're not talking high levels. So I think that there's those two processes that are happening. I do think that there's, on the progressive front, I just 150% agree with what Dora was saying. And, and I'm hoping that we're learning from our experience. There are three things I think we should learn from. One is that we need a counter narrative, not a counter argument. So we shouldn't be kind of trying to tackle, we talked about the, the household budget analogy, but also the magic money tree is another powerful one. But rather than trying to, you know, counter argue these things, just create a, another narrative that very much centers around that the economy is this thing that we can shape and we have agency very much along the lines of what Dora was saying. The second thing that I think is really important is not just kind of the message, but also really how we unroll the message and making sure that everyone is saying the same thing over and over and over again, which the conservatives have done very effectively. It's really important that the progressive side that starts to unite a bit more and, and not just it's not just the message, but that we use the messages collectively is really important. And the, and the third thing that I think I really try to apply in my work in, in Europe is learning that after 2010, we learned that it's not enough to just come out with you know clever papers and numbers. We need to build movements. We need to work together. We need to build campaigns. And we need to make sure that the debate happens out in the open and not behind technocratic closed doors, so to speak. So, so those would be, if we want to win this side and, and really create systemic disruptive change, that is all possible. We need to make these things accessible, but we need to build a movement behind it, demanding it on a positive narrative. Thanks so much, Frank. Obviously, I'm behind that. Um, Dora, same question. How are we doing? What do we... Yeah, where are we? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'd like starting on a positive note, you know, it's like last year on the 2020 spending review, where there was a kind of kickback from, you know, a whole range of economists on the left, which was in response to Laura Koonsberg on the BBC saying, you know, that we'd maxed out the credit card and using this kind of national debt analogy. And, you know, that was a coordinated effort to call that out that took the BBC to task really about the way it was reporting on the economy. And I think, you know, that it that was something that whilst that's not, you know, I'm sure most people won't have even noticed that happening. I think, you know, there has been a sort of sense of a more strategic, a more, a more I mean, it's still reactive, but a, a kind of feeling of seizing on these moments and not letting history repeat itself in quite the same way. And I think we've also seen more recently a way in which 
austerity or these kinds of policies, and I hope we're going to see this over the next couple of weeks, really highlighting that this is a political choice, you know, refuting this idea that it's either good economics or that it's just necessary. And I think that I really hope that the kind of work that has been done and the learning that's been done since the financial crisis is hopefully going to be something that we really see kind of emerging over the next kind of uh, weeks and months. And I think, like I was saying before, you know, the Conservative Party are laid fairly bare on this in some ways. You know, the levelling up agenda is, you know, that has still not been defined. And then we're in a moment where we're talking about cuts and you think, you know, their voting coalition has shifted dramatically. So I think that there are reasons to think that this is a moment of opportunity that needs to be seized on. And, I, you know, we did a whole load of polling just ahead of the Labour Party conference. And we found that there was such high levels of support for interventionist big kind of economic policies, you know, including a wealth tax, you know, on a wealth tax, the overall level of support was 68%. And that was 64% of leave voters, you know, that support cut across age, it cut across political party. So I think that, like I was saying before, you know, we have this kind of deep austerity realism thinking. And I think the balancing the books narrative is very much is playing on that. But I do also still think that that sort of exhaustion from all of these years of austerity that Frank pointed at is there. And that's also that we've been kind of promised or there's this been this sense of renewal, this sense that there's going to be investment. So I think it's a big gamble. And I think there's a lot to play for over the, the next few months, for sure. Well, I think that's as good a place to leave it as any. Quite a great call to action there. Thank you both so much for being with me. It's been a really enlightening and encouraging conversation, actually. That is sadly all we've got time for on this week's Weekly Economics podcast. Dora Mead, first of all, thank you so much for being with me. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? How can they find you? Ah, I'm uh, well, on Twitter at Dora Mead and probably it's the Neon website where you can get in touch with me. Brilliant. And Frank Van Leuven, thanks so much for being with us. Same question, where can people track you down? Yeah, um, I'm also on Twitter, Frank underscore Van underscore Leuven. And you can always email me or drop me a message at frank.vanleuven at neweconomics.org. Lovely. That is it for today's Weekly Economics Podcast. Lovely listener, but we'll be back soon with more. Don't worry. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.